So the first reading is Isaiah 52, verse 13, uh, to 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a, dry root, uh, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep, uh, as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he, was, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The second reading is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 47. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, 
they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. If we've not met, my name is Phil. I'm the Associate Minister, and it's lovely to have you with us tonight. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Our Father God, we pray as we stand on holy ground tonight, as we look at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us, uh, you would give us hearts that are humble. We pray that you would free us from cynicism, from hard-heartedness, from dullness or over-familiarity. Would you move us again with the greatest event in history? And will we see there your love? and our salvation. Amen. The battle to secure the Arnhem Road Bridge in Holland in 1944, late 1944, was one of those episodes that the British Army seems to specialize in. There was bungling incompetence at some of the highest level in the planning and just ridiculous bravery on the ground. And one of the most famous incidents involved the splendidly named Major uh, Alison Digby Tatham Warner who sounds like he should have been an extra on Downton Abbey, but he was, in fact, the very eccentric and extremely brave commander of A Company in the Parachute Regiment. And they were heavily outnumbered. They'd been told that they were only facing light forces, and instead they they were facing panzer divisions with tanks and artillery. And as the men tried to hold on to this town and advance towards the bridge, the the mortars were zeroed in on them. There were shells exploding all over the place. And Major Warner could be seen. He found himself an umbrella in the town, and he wandered around the town, sort of pointing to enemy positions, out in the middle in the open, uh, directing the fire of his men. And at one point, he he found uh, in an old bombed-out house a bowler hat, which he thought would go wonderfully with his umbrella. So he took off his helmet and put on the bowler hat and wandered around the town. And the the incident that's most famous of him was that there was a a group of wounded men um, in a cellar, and they needed to take them across the street where the the medical aid station was. But it was too dangerous because um, the the mortar fire was particularly heavy on that street. There were were shrapnel exploding everywhere. And he could see the men hesitating. He said, what on earth are you hesitating for? They need to be taken over to the aid station. And they 
explained in, I imagine, very polite language, um, being under fire and being soldiers, well, excuse me, Major, but it seems that there are one or two bullets and bombs flying around, uh, and we're a little bit concerned. To which the Major did this. Oh, let me help. Would you care to walk under here? And offered to escort them across... And one of them asked him, in rather flowery language, I imagine, uh, did he really think that this was going to protect them from mortifying? He said, no, but it may well rain after you. And escorted, which is incredibly brave, but you have to say, utterly ridiculous. I mean, what on earth is the point of being safe from water droplets when at any moment you could be blown to a million pieces by mortars or cut in half by machine gun fire? The truth is, though, a lot of us, as we contemplate the future, we think about our careers. We think about relationships. We think about taking care of health and pension plans. But all the while, we ignore the reality of death and the judgment of God, which every human must face. If you like, we, <laughs> we've got an umbrella for the rain, but we have no plan to deal with the bombs and the bullets. And the question we ask tonight is, what is your plan, what is your protection as you face not bombs and bullets, but the eternal judgment of God through which all of us must one day walk? Have you spent all of your time uh, thinking about the umbrella for the rain, uh, planning for your health and your finances and your family, and failed to plan for the judgment of God? That's the question we're asked. Many of us here, though, would say, well, actually, I have thought about that. I would, I'm a Christian. I trust in Jesus Christ. Well, Isaiah 53 is a wonderful reminder to us that here is a truth we need to hear again and again and again, because I guess, like me, many of us uh, forget very quickly the reality of how we've been saved. And if I ask you, is God good, then our answer, actually, it turns to the the physical stuff in life. Uh, how's that going? We forget what God has done for us at the cross. And so if you like, we're very aware of whether we're getting in, wet in the rain, whether God has provided us with an umbrella for the unpleasant things in life to protect us from those, and we completely forget the wonder of being protected from the shells, the bullets, the bombs of eternal judgment of death and hell. A very important reminder for all of us tonight. If you want to open up uh, Isaiah 52... Page 741, that's where we're going to be spending our time tonight. And what Isaiah is going to tell us is that God reveals through his prophet that the shield that alone can protect you from God's judgment of eternal death is the death of God's Son in eternal judgment on the cross. Now, there have been glimmers uh, and hints throughout the Old Testament of how on earth a, a just God can love and accept and forgive sinful people. There have been all sorts of hints, flickers of light in the darkness, if you like. But in Isaiah 53, it's like dawn starts to appear and the light begins to get very bright indeed. Now, the Old Testament promises, are, they're like um, presents wrapped under a Christmas tree and you can sort of work out some things. Isaiah 53 is like the year my brother was given a bicycle for Christmas. There's no hiding that in the wrap. Okay, I can tell what's going on here. You get to Isaiah 53, oh, this now it's becoming pretty clear how God's going to deal with sin, how God's going to save us. 
He's going to send a sacrifice, a substitute to die for us. So we're just going to run through it. Five very brief points as we, as we go through the passage. It's in five little standards of three verses each. And we'll move through fairly rapidly. Firstly, the exalted servant is appalling to see. Verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. It's the title to the section, really. It's all about the exaltation of God's divine servant. Now, God's servant has been introduced in these central chapters of Isaiah. After dozens and dozens of chapters where God has warned the people, your wicked behavior has got to be addressed, where God has promised his judgment. And we've uh, been thinking, uh, we're coming in at the end of those chapters uh, in the series that we're in the middle of on Sunday nights as we go through Isaiah 36 to 39. And after those chapters dealing with judgment, after the experience of Hezekiah and the Assyrian invasion, we get from Isaiah 40 the promise that God will not completely destroy his wicked people. That somehow, as well as acting to to punish because he's a just God, he will also save because he's a kind and merciful God. And central to his plan to save his people, to preserve them, is this this weird figure of the servant, a a shadowy figure that we learn bits about through Isaiah 40 to, to 53, really. And it's hard to work out who he is because God seems to talk to him. He's somebody else. But then here in verse 13, he's described as uh, lifted up and highly exalted, a phrase only ever used of God himself in the Bible. But the real shock is not that the servant seems to almost be God. The real shock comes in verse 14 about this exalted one, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Well, so he will sprinkle many nations. You know what it's like. Everyone slows down on the motorway. There's been a sickening pileup on the other carriageway. And as you get there, there's still smoke coming out of some of the cars. There's debris strewn all over the the carriageway, mangled wreckage. And, And in the middle of it, there is a well, it's hard to tell, really. There's, it looks like it used to be human. But you can barely look. It's just a, a mess of blood and bone fragment. And it's just awful to see. And that's the image here. This horrific, battered spectacle of a man. This is God's highly exalted one. He'll sprinkle the nations. Before whom the nations will gather in awe, verse 15. He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. The one who will do wonders beyond anything any human can imagine. He will be God's exalted one, but he won't be exalted in a worldly way onto some great throne. He will be exalted as he's lifted up on a cross to be tortured to death as a bloody spectacle. The exalted servant is appalling to see. Secondly, the mighty arm is pathetic and despised. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. 
you can sort of understand why people fail to, to recognize God's salvation when it appears in verse 1 because it's just rather unlike God. I mean, the arm of the Lord is a phrase associated with God's unimaginable might. It's when the creator of the universe rolls up his sleeves, flexes his biceps, and acts in power. It's not something I can illustrate, to be perfectly honest. Um, But we are wowed by, well, superficial splendor. We want our heroes to look like the Marvel movies, muscle-bound and impressive. But we're told here in verses 2 to 3 that the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord... He looks like a total loser, really. He's tender, like a little root in dry ground that could wither at any moment. He's a sort of no-hoper that people would mock and laugh at if he tried to stand up and do anything. Forget saving others. You think, this guy can't save himself. And when Jesus did come, it wasn't to Rome. I mean, Israel was a nowhere place as a a horrible little corner of the empire that nobody really wanted to be governor of. But he didn't even go to the capital to be born in in Israel, Jerusalem. He was born in some far-flung armpit up in the north that nobody knew anything about. And his life was characterized not by this surge of wild success as the the crowds all flocked to him and and he rode to, to, to victory and to rule and to save on this surge of popular success. No, It was rejection and sorrow. Jesus was the sort of person people were embarrassed to admit they knew. That's who he was. It's the sort of man who was mocked and laughed at by everyone who watched as he gasped for breath, nailed to a cross, his life bleeding out in tortured, agonizing grief. And all people could do was mock. The mighty arm of the Lord when it came, looked pretty pathetic. And so we despised it. But, but thirdly, the stricken one was punished in our place. I wonder if you noticed the subtle shift that took place in verse 3. Can you see it? What word slips in in verse 3? We. Us. Verses 4 to 6, it's all we and us. It's no longer spectators. We're we're involved now. Years ago, the FBI uh, swept up a whole heap of America's most wanted by uh, sending um, invitations to their family homes, which were for a game show where there were there were great cash prizes or so they thought. They thought they'd gone to be the audience on a game show where they might win, and instead they ended up being arrested and accused and put on trial. And that's what happens to us here. We read as neutral observers, oh, this is interesting, God's strange servant, and then suddenly we find it's we, us. You, if you thought you've come here tonight to, to learn about God from the Bible, I'm afraid things have changed. You and I are the ones in the focus, in the crosshairs right now. Surely he took up our pain. And bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Why is the arm of the Lord so pathetic? It's for a good reason. And we learn why in these verses as we get to the heart, not just of the theology of Isaiah, but to the very heart of the Bible itself. And they answer the question, how is it that God can be a holy, good, loving God and yet receive and welcome foolish, wicked, filthy sinners like us? You see it in verse 4. The great servant suffering. And the only conclusion to draw is that he's stricken by God, smitten, afflicted. And as Jesus, God's servant, hung on the cross 700 years later, a great darkness, the darkness of God's judgment, fell over the land. God turned out the lights in the universe as his darkness and judgment came on Jesus. And as the funnel of God's wrath poured out on Jesus' head, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the obvious conclusion is the one in verse 4. God's punishing an incredibly wicked man for what must have been the most mind-bogglingly wicked life. But then when you read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, you think, hang on a second, I can't find a single sin here. He loved other people more than himself. He honored and obeyed God even when it cost him his popularity, even when it cost him his life. Here is the one good man who ever walked the earth. The answer in verses five to six is that he was pierced not for his transgressions, but for ours. Crushed not for his iniquities, but for ours. Punished in our place. For we are the ones who, like sheep, have gone astray, and the iniquity has been laid on him. He's punished as a substitute, punished for sin that's not his, that's yours, that's mine. He was struck uh, for our transgressions, verse 5, that's breaking God's laws, for our iniquities, that inner filth and corruption. It's us, it's you and me. We're the ones who stubbornly, like sheep, wander away from God. Deaf to his word, verse 6. And God's servant swapped places with you on that cross. His punishment, our peace. His wounding, your healing. Your sin, my sin. Him held guilty. I think there's just an unfathomable scale to the words at the end of verse 6. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all know that feeling of being weighed down by guilt and shame. Sometimes it's wrongful. Sometimes we get heaped with shame that's totally inappropriate. But many times, many times we're weighed down by guilt and shame because we have done things that are awful. That overwhelming sense of failure, of filth, of unworthiness and despair, the the crushing self-loathing when you realize that there is no excuse I can't blame anybody else. I did it, and it must mean I am the sort of person who does stuff like that. And that's just one thing you did. Lots of us have come back from a weekend away, and yet you've, many of you have come on the underground, and you've carried your bags with all your weekend stuff. It's been on your shoulders all day. Imagine the, the, the weight of guilt and shame, the weight of our sin, our wrongdoing, as weights in a bag on your shoulders. 
Imagine the weight, not just of the worst thing you've ever done, but of every wrongful, shameful thing you've ever done. The crushing, overwhelming, unbearable burden of all that you've ever done piled upon your back. You feel your knees buckling under the weight of it, the oppression of it. And Jesus bore the weight of every sin of every human who would ever trust in him in all of history. I've met people who beat their wives and their children before they became Christians. I've met people who lied and cheated and used pretty much everybody they met. I've met people who sold drugs and stole. I've met people who committed torture and murder before turning to Christ. And all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the sin was borne by him. He did it, verse 5, to bring us peace with God, healing from our corruption. You see what's at the heart of these verses? It's in our place. It's a great swap, the great trade that takes place. And a, just over the road, you'll have seen there, there are these massive nine-foot-high fences all the way around the middle bit of Hyde Park because it's the, the summer concert season. And there's some fantastic uh, concerts. If you're into that sort of thing, Celine Dion is playing. I was very excited. Uh, and, uh, but the tickets are incredibly expensive. And if you want to go, it's all sold out. You can wander along and you'll find there are ticket touts there. And... Uh, They'll approach you and they'll say, well, what are you after, sir? I'd, I would love just, it would make my life to see Celine Dion live. I could die happy if I've seen Celine Dion live. And they'll say, well, that will cost you a few hundred pounds. And well, you have to open your wallet and pull out 200 pounds and you get in to see Celine Dion. Only way to get in is to, is to trade something valuable for a ticket that gets you in. Well, what are you doing to trade to get into heaven. I mean, Jesus is the only person who has a ticket. He's the only one who's lived the, the, a life that gives him a right to get in. And so what do we trade with him to get into heaven? He has righteousness, a, a life of perfect obedience to God. He's got inner purity. He, he didn't just do the right things. He loved the right things. He did the right things because he loved God and loved other people. His browser history had nothing shameful he didn't even waste time. Well, he didn't have the internet, but he was he, absolutely nothing impure or unjust or unrighteous. And you approach him like a ticket tout, and he says, I tell you what, you want my righteousness, truth, my purity, my status as God's child, and my access to his heavenly kingdom, and a perfect relationship with God the Father, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you that for your shame, your filth, your guilt, and for eternal death. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. But that is the trade Jesus makes. That's the swap at the heart of the gospel. He was punished in our place. Fourthly, he's submissive to injustice. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in death. So he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. These verses make it clear that he went willingly, knowingly, humbly to his death. He didn't die as a victim of uh, circumstances beyond his control, overpowered by brutal forces. He chose, he chose to submit himself to the whipping, the beating, the crown of thorns. This is the Son of God. The armies of heaven are at his command. I mean, can you imagine as Jesus is being beaten and flogged in that courtyard by the Roman soldiers. Uh, armies of 10 million angels, swords drawn, arms raised, just waiting for the word, desperate to come and destroy wicked humanity. But the word never comes. Jesus refuses to call on the armies of heaven. Like a lamb before the, sh- the slaughterers, he stayed silent. And so down, down he went, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. Through injustice and mockery all the way to death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. The greatest man who ever lived ends up a cold corpse in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. No legacy, no children, Not even any followers at this point. Humiliated, cut off, and soon to be forgotten. Or so it seemed. For the passage carries on. And we learn in 11 to 13, the suffering servant will save sinners. He has a future. The curtain's torn back, actually, in these last verses. Verse 10. And you see the purpose. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Here's God's plan, not cosmic child abuse perpetrated against poor innocent son by vengeful father, but the eternal plan of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, carried out in perfect unity of will. And it's a, it's a plan that works As verse 10 puts it, the offering will have offspring. He has a future. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and bear their iniquities. Dead but not finished, he rises to life and brings blessing to millions. The innocent one justifies, that is, he gives to you his righteous status. He makes you acceptable before God so you don't need to be fearful or ashamed. Verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. As low as he was humiliated, he will be exalted even higher. And rise like a conquering hero because he bore sins away. There was that wonderful story um, that came out a couple of years ago. Bombardier Robert Key in uh, September 1944, about the same time that the the battles were happening in Arnhem. uh, He was in the the French village of Anazin. 
And the official reports that went back to his family said that he died as an idiot. Um, he was playing with a grenade and blew himself up. A foolish waste. But a number of years later, the family was surprised that the, the French village invited them back from a memorial for him, which they thought was a bit odd because he was just a fool who died in a tragic waste. But it turned out that the, the initial army investigator hadn't spoken very good French and had misunderstood. What had happened was some French children had found a grenade and had been playing with it, and he had spotted it, and he ran across, realizing that the pin had come out, grabbed the grenade, and ran away from the children. And before he could throw it away, the grenade blew up, and he was killed, but they were saved. He bore away that which would have destroyed them. It's what Jesus does. He bears away the judgment of God. And so we praise him and we love him. And we don't face that death ourselves. Okay, just briefly as we finish, what does this mean for us? Where is your hope for the future? The umbrellas of education, a flourishing career, marriage, a reputation that you're good, they make us feel hopeful and secure, those umbrellas. You can turn to the insurance industry and you can, you can get protection for things that are going to happen to you. Uh, for a price, they'll insure you against all sorts of risks that are coming to you in the future. Uh, you can get insurance for uh, lightning. It's a one in 10 million risk if you're in the UK. You can get insured against the risk of having twins. It's a one in 250 chance in the UK. You can actually get uh, insurance against the risk of being abducted by aliens. And the extraordinary thing is, do you know 30,000 people in this country have taken out that insurance? 30,000. But there is no insurance policy against the judgment of God. There is no insurance policy against the judgment of God. And you've got a one-in-one chance of facing that. So what is your hope uh, the, the umbrellas of career and health and education, they're of no use against the judgment of God. The insurance industry can't protect you. Well, I go to church every week, and that's got to count for something. Jesus' strongest criticism was for religious hypocrites. Look, I'm far from the worst person I know. I mean, look at the news. Well, God will deal with those sins. That's not the issue. The question is, what about you and yours? I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's people. Do you think God shows favoritism? Our hope, but wonderfully it's a certain hope, our only hope is that Jesus bears our sins. If you put your trust in him, he takes your punishment. He takes your judgment. He bears your sins away. All of it. There is my hope. The cross and on the cross, I see all of my punishment taken by Jesus Christ and none left for me to bear. And so no matter how convicting the voice of conscience is, you're forgiven if you trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never put your trust in him before, then do so tonight. You don't have to perform any ceremony, pay any money, or do anything. You don't even have to become perfect afterwards. Because your forgiveness, your status before God, isn't contingent on doing a better job in the future. It's grounded in what God has already done in Jesus Christ in the past. Put your trust in him and you're forgiven. 
And then there's that question, do you ever, uh, do you ever wonder whether God really loves you? I think especially when life gets dis- disappointing or painful or difficult, we find it, our confidence that God loves me gets a little bit shaken. But look at the cross. Look at the value of what God sacrificed to save you. Not a bull or a goat or a lamb or a galaxy, but his own son became a human being so that you could be saved. Look at the suffering God the Son was willing to endure so that you could be saved. The humiliation of the uncreated God becoming a creature. And not just any creature, but a a creature who would serve other people, one who would be despised and rejected, deserted by friends, hated by enemies, abused, accused, tortured, and finally killed. And worst of all, cut off from God the Father. And God the Father willingly sent, and God the Son willingly went, because he loves you. He loves you. Too often we answer the question, does God love me? Uh, Inside, our answer is dependent on whether God has provided an umbrella for the rain, whether financially, whether in this world I've got the health, the relationships that make this world feel uh, safe and and, and life feel all right. But God has has protected you from the destructive power of eternal judgment. He has provided the savior you and I need. Does God love you? Look at the cross. After unpacking Isaiah 53 in his commentary, the theologian Oswald declares, the mystery is no longer how is it possible for sinful humans to have a healthy, a whole relationship with God. The only mystery is how on earth could God love us like that? Here is the heart of the gospel. The death of God the Son through the love of God the Father come to you by the power of God the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the cross, and whether it's for the first time or whether we've heard it many times before, please would we be able to receive it with faith, to see that this is not just the death of, uh, of Jesus for sinners, but for me, for my sin. Pray that each and every one of us here tonight might know that, that we might know we are forgiven and know that we are eternally safe, that death might have no fear. And our Father, we pray that through all the struggles and difficulties of life, we may not doubt your love for us as we look back to the cross and see in this God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.